Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So last week, we kicked off a brand new series called Want to Get Away, where we're talking about some of the real life stuff we get back from vacation and get smacked in the face with that makes us want to head straight back out on vacation again. That's stuff we deal with daily that we desperately want to get away from. And we're talking about how God says we can build lives we don't need to escape. So this morning, I want to talk about something I think hits close to home for probably every single person in this room. It's a thing that can make or break our joy and either limit or raise our ability to step into the lives God says we were created for. I've seen this happen in my own life. I'm the oldest in my family. And so when I went to college, my parents had never done the whole dropping your kid off at school thing before. And a couple weeks before it started, my mom read this article that said the best thing you can do for your college freshman is isolate them completely. Make sure they have no way to get off campus, so they just have to stick around and make friends. And she thought that was a great idea because she really genuinely wanted to do what was best for me. So I got dropped off at college with no computer, no car, and no cell phone. And I know all the teenagers in here right now are thinking, how did you even live? I barely did, all right? And if you're wondering how old I am, I'm not as old as some of the people in here who graduated high school in the 1900s. Um, my hair looks like it, but I'm not, like, I'm not one of those geezers, but I'm pretty old. And I asked my parents like, if I could please just at least have a cell phone and if I could hop on their pan plan and even pay them for it because it was expensive to get your own plan, but they had decided on the isolation thing. So my dad gave me a $40 phone card instead. And for all of you youths in here, a phone card was like this card you could use with a stationary phone. You had to dial a number on the back, then type in your 75-digit personal code. It took a while, and then you could call long distance and be charged by the minute. And I wasn't fired up about it, but I figured it was better than nothing. I had to have some way of talking to the cute blonde back home. Fast forward about six weeks. I hitchhiked my way home for fall break because I didn't have a vehicle. Actually, I borrowed a friend's car, but it was the same concept in my mind. And you'll imagine my surprise when I walked in the front door of my house and saw my 16-year-old sister, to whom I'd had to give my car, because my parents didn't think I should have it at college, talking on her new cell phone. And I was like, what's going on? She's like, well, mom decided now that I'm driving and I have the car and stuff, I probably need a cell phone. So they got me one. Pretty cool, huh? No. Not cool at all. I just remember having this furious conversation with my parents. I was like, wait, let me get this straight. Carrie survives for 16 years, and for that, she gets my car and a cell phone you guys are paying for. I get a scholarship to college, so my tuition costs you nothing. And for that, I get a $40 phone card, a bus map, and a pad on the back. And I will never forget, my mom looked me in the eye and said, yeah, you're going to be fine, because that's how Debbie rolls. I look back now and laugh because it was kind of funny. And because to be completely fair to my parents, my sister did need a cell phone. Some teenagers drive on sidewalks and run over mailboxes to be rebellious. She did it because she couldn't help it. She was a terrible driver. 
is a terrible driver, but that reality still didn't calm down my soul. And if I could be straight with you, it's a little bit of an embarrassing story to tell because I desperately wish 18-year-old Mike hadn't been so bitter and so jealous and so angry when I realized my sister was getting what I wasn't. I wish that the first things that welled up inside my soul weren't pride and self-righteousness and a desire to compare myself to someone else to decide what I deserved. And I also wish, desperately, I could stand up here and tell all of you I killed that off at 18. Like, I've never really struggled with comparison again. I, I've never looked around and been jealous that someone else had something I didn't. Never felt like I wasn't getting what I deserved, but oh, it's not true. It's not true. It's still a struggle for me, and I'd bet my bottom dollar it's a struggle for you guys also. But the thing is, if we're going to build lives, we don't need to get away from, we have to learn to kill comparison. Because it's corrosive. It's hard to look out at the world around us these days and not notice everything that divides us as human beings. Like our world is full of so much violence and hatred, so much bitterness in the places in our hearts where love was meant to reside. And I have a conviction that pride and selfishness are a massive part of the problem because it's natural for us as human beings to attempt to elevate ourselves at the expense of others, to measure ourselves over and against the people around us and treat life like it's a zero-sum game where somebody else winning means we must be losing. And once we've convinced ourselves of that, it's easy to get real bitter real quick when other people have what we don't have. Like none of us haven't had a moment where we look out and feel like someone else's life is better than my life. It's easier than my life. And they have what I want and what I'm pretty sure I deserve. You been there? Yeah. Here's the bad news. The fruit that grows on that tree is cynicism and resentment. When we allow ourselves to get caught up in the comparison trap, we get really cynical about life and we get really resentful of other people. And interpersonally, that plays itself out like hatred. And so it cuts us off from relationship. We also get resentful toward God. Like he owes us something more or something better than what we've been given. And we feel so justified in our anger at him that we cling to it because we would rather let it rob us of our future than let it go. Jesus has something to say about that. So if you have a Bible or a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it open to the book of Matthew chapter 20. This is kind of what's going down before we get into the story. Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, are increasingly not seeing eye to eye about what God is all about in the world. And then there's this moment where a bunch of little kids run up to Jesus so that he can pray for them and bless them. Their parents sent them. And the disciples are like, hey, get these kids out of here. Jesus has important stuff to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let the children come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, which really infuriates the Pharisees. They're like, no, it doesn't. It belongs to us. We jump through the hoops. We check the boxes. We're super righteous. We earned the kingdom of heaven. And so they're mad at Jesus that he would say the kingdom of heaven belongs to anyone who didn't earn it. And in the middle of that, this rich young man approaches Jesus and asks him a question. He says, teacher, what good things must I do to inherit eternal life. Like, what's the the list? What are are the boxes I got to check so that I can earn heaven when I die? 
And Jesus looks at him and responds, good things. Well, only, only God is truly good, but I'll answer your question. Keep the commandment. And this guy's understandably a little confused. He's like, There's 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament. Which, which one? And Jesus outlines the Ten Commandments, and the guy gets super excited. He's like, no way, the Ten Commandments? I've been doing that since I was little. Like, I'm good to go for heaven then. I already checked those boxes. Yes! But the thing is, Jesus is getting at something a little bit deeper. At the heart level, not the surface level. At the spirit of the law, which this guy has definitely broken, and not just the letter of it, which he's probably also broken, whether he realizes it or not. And so Jesus looks at him and says, okay, cool. One last thing then, sell all of your possessions, give the money away to the poor, and come follow me, because following me all in is what it's all about. And this rich young man walks away sad because he realizes he can't do it. He can't bring himself to do it. He loves his money and his stuff just a little bit more than he loves God. And the disciples are watching all this go down, and they start freaking out because they're like, if that's what it takes, if it takes like unwavering, complete commitment without any doubt, like I'm all in for Jesus, then who in the world can be saved? Like if if that's what you got to do to earn heaven, uh, can anyone? And Jesus hears them asking this, and he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And what he's saying is, you guys, salvation is a God thing, not a you thing. It's about his love, not your performance. But Peter just misses the point. Like, dear, sweet, stupid, idiot Peter. I appreciate Peter so much. He is me and I am him. Because Peter watches this guy walk away, realizing like he doesn't want to follow Jesus because it's going to cost him. Then Peter gets to thinking. He's like, hey. I'm following Jesus, even though it costs me. <laughs> I'm pretty good. So he starts patting himself on the back. He's like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hey, hey, hey. We left everything to follow you. We're like, we're, we're still in. We're not like that, that jerk over there who, who walked away. We're, we're following. What do we get? Like, what's the reward? What do we have coming to us? What awesome stuff are we going to get? Because we're so awesome. And Jesus realizes that Peter has maybe missed the big idea. And probably everyone else has too. And so he tells them a story. I call it the story of the ludicrous landowner. Because this guy is absolutely nuts. You'll see it in a minute. But what Jesus is doing with this story is speaking a hard truth to Peter. And to all the Peters around him. And all the Peters in this room today. You and me and every single one of us who's ever gotten caught up in the comparison trap or ever felt like God owed us better than we were getting because of what we did for him. This is what Jesus says at the beginning of Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. All right, this is kind of how it worked back in the day. Day laborers would gather in the town square and they would wait for someone to come along and hire them for the day. And so this guy found a bunch of laborers waiting for a job, said, hey, I'm gonna give you a job. I'll pay you one denarius to work for the day, which was a solid day's pay. It was the appropriate amount. It was everything they needed to provide food and shelter for their family. And the work itself was a gift. Make no mistake, everyone who got hired was really pumped up. Like they went there not knowing whether they'd get a job for that day, which is why it made a lot of sense in Jesus' day to pray for your daily bread because they earned it on a day-to-day basis and no one knew what tomorrow would bring. 
But these guys are, are really fired up. Like, we got a job. We're going to get a denarius. That's enough. And they're off. But the landowner decides, you know what? This is enough people. I got I to hire more people to get the job done. So Jesus says, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at about noon, at about three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. And again, for these guys, especially those who got hired late in the day, the work is a blessing. It means they can put some food on the table for their families. And we don't know why no one had hired them yet or why they didn't have a different job, but I think it's fair to assume they weren't as motivated as the early birds. Like this vineyard owner seems to be hiring absolutely anyone he can find who's willing to go work for him. And so if they were in the marketplace ready to work earlier, they'd have gotten a job earlier, but they weren't. This is a crew of people who slept in and showed up late, and then they got hired late, but still it was better than nothing. The vineyard owner was going to give them something for the little bit of work they did. And finally, it gets to be like an hour away from quitting time, and this farmer wants to finish strong. So Jesus says about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Well, no one's hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and then going to the first. All right, so now everyone's in line waiting to get paid. And who knows why the farmer started with the last people hired. He felt like it, I guess. And they're standing there wondering, like, how much are we going to get? Probably not a whole lot. We just worked for an hour. And what happens? The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Like they got paid a full day's wages, enough to completely cover their need, which is nuts. It's like 10 times the amount that they deserved. And they're absolutely blown away that they would come late in the day, that they, that they slept in and woke up and then showed up and got all of their needs met by this guy. It's kind of crazy. And the people who've been there all day now are looking on thinking like, oh, right, this is amazing. This guy's paying a way better rate than we thought he was paying. If those people who came late made a full denarius, what are we going to get? Jesus tells us this, when those who came were hired, or when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Everyone who's sitting here listening to Jesus at this point just had their minds completely blown. Like he strung them along with this story and then added a twist ending nobody saw coming. And what they realize in this second is that if God's generosity, the way God blesses people, were represented by a human, that person would be unlike anyone else they had ever met. There's a couple things I want us to see in the story that I think will help us 
change the way we operate in the world and escape the prison of comparison. And the first one is this, comparison kills contentment. Comparison kills contentment because it dramatically alters the level of our expectations. When the workers got hired in the morning, they got promised one denarius, one solid full day's wages, and they were grateful for the gift of being paid to work that day. But then once they saw somebody else get more, once they saw the people who got hired last get paid at a different rate, all of a sudden their expectations skyrocketed. It changed the game for them, not because they had set out expecting more, not because they even deserved more for the work they'd been doing, but because somebody else got it. I think the same exact thing happens to us so often. We look out and when someone else gets something we think we deserve or something we want, our sense of fairness and our sense of justice is offended. But that's a dangerous spot to be in because bitterness, resentment, frustration, and hatred grow in the gap between our reality and our expectations. And there's always a gap. There's always a gap. You ever find out like what one of your coworkers makes and been furious? Like how in the world are they making $5,000 more than I do for doing like half the work? Anybody? The Sacramento Bee, a couple years ago, decided to run an experiment. They published a website that listed the salaries of every single employee in the University of California system. And then some folks at Princeton, because they're smart, were like, it'd be fun to do a job satisfaction survey now that that website's out. And so they called up all the professors at USC, UCLA, Cal Berkeley, and said, how happy are you with your job? And these are the results. All the professors who are at or near the top of the pay scale were like, I don't care about that website at all. It's just, pay doesn't mean anything to me. It's no difference. But those who are in the middle and at the bottom reported shockingly high rates of job dissatisfaction. One of them even said, when I saw what I had been paid and considered the work that I've done, I went immediately to my boss and resigned. All right, audience participation moment. This isn't hard. We can all do it. I want everybody on a scale of one to 10, one being low, 10 being high, just, just show me with a number of fingers in the air. How happy would you be, one to 10, if tomorrow morning you walked into work and your boss said, you're getting a 10% raise? Where are you at? One to 10, one to 10. We got a lot of 10s, like, all right, 10%. Follow-up question, follow-up question. So you, you got your 10% raise in the morning. Where are you at in the afternoon? All right, you're 10, 8, 9, 10, wherever you're at. Where are you going to be in the afternoon, 1 to 10 scale, if at lunch, one of your coworkers says, you'll never believe it, I got a 20% raise this morning. How happy are you now, <laughs> 1 to 10? Some of you are like, negative 4. I'm ne- like, why are you mad? You're making 10% more money than you made yesterday, and you're furious because somebody else got more. Comparison kills contentment every single time, but we do it. We can barely escape it. I do. We just, we look out. We're caught up looking around at other people. We look at other people's houses and other people's lawns and other people's cars and other people's jobs and other people's successes and other people's talents and other people's social media feeds. And we're convinced like their life is better than my life. And it frustrates us. We grow up and we never get past that thing we did as kids. When the teacher handed out a test and said, keep your eyes on your own paper. And you're like, I'm going to try. But then you got to number 11. You're like, I don't know. 
Timmy FB. Sweet, that's what I had. That or you get to number 11, you're like, I have no idea. B. <laughs> like, we do it. We cannot keep our eyes on our own paper, and it's not hard to decide that somehow we've been robbed and we're missing out. And when we do it, our joy just gets crushed. It crumbles under the weight of these weird expectations. And the tragedy is, once we've convinced ourselves we're on the bad end of unfairness, we can't see any of the good stuff in our lives anymore. Like Once we've focused in on what we want but don't have, we're blinded to the blessings right in front of our faces. And the most dangerous part of that is that we begin to minimize God's grace. We forget that breath in our lungs and a heartbeat in our chests is a gift. We forget that every good thing we have comes from above and start to think, that maybe just maybe everything we've got, God owes us, and he probably owes us a little bit more. And it causes us to miss out on the beauty of the gospel because we treat it like something we deserve, something we earned, something that should have been given to us when the truth is it's a gift. And that's the second thing I want us to see this morning is that grace is a generous gift. God's grace is generous and it's a gift. It's nothing less. In fact, the word we translate grace in the New Testament is this Greek word charis. It literally means an unearned, undeserved gift. It's a gift, and it's enough. It's enough. It's exactly what we need. Like One denarius was enough to provide for every one of those workers in the vineyard that day to make sure they could put a roof over their family's heads and food on the table. And the thing is, if the landowner would have paid the guys who worked only an hour less than a denarius. Even though they absolutely deserved less than a denarius, they would have gone home and still had need. They wouldn't have had enough. And so this farmer decided, I'm giving everybody enough. And the thing about God's grace is it's enough. It's exactly, perfectly, and completely what we need to be full to move from where we are into the lives and the futures. God said he dreamed us up, knit us together, and placed us here to step into. But sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. At least if you're anything like me. Sometimes we're really grateful for grace, but we just want grace plus. Like, God, grace is amazing. I'm so thankful that I get to go to heaven when I die. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for, for giving your life so I could be forgiven and set free. I'm really grateful for that. But also, could I get this? Like, like grace is cool, but God, I'm serving you. I'm showing up. I'm praying. I'm serving at church. I'm giving money. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm checking all these boxes. So I think you owe me grace plus everything else that I want because you gave, you gave that stuff to, to her. You gave that stuff to him. Lord, look at what I'm doing for you. I am objectively a better person and a better Christian than Susan. And here's Susan, and her life is good, and my life is bad. What's up with that? I hate Susan. Like, we're there. We end up in that space really easily and really quickly, and it's easy from our limited vantage point to see how God's system is unfair because somebody else has what we deserve. We're up here and they're down here. And that belief cuts us off. It cuts us off from relationship with God and relationship with the people around us, right? This isn't rocket surgery, we know. It's hard to do community with people we're jealous of. And it's hard to love people we think we're better than. 
but it's easy, particularly in a world infested with materialism, like the culture we inhabit. It's easy to end up in that space where we're jealous and we're judgy and we're bitter and we get mad at God just like those workers got mad at the vineyard owner. But I love the line when he looks at them and he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Where we translate envious here is this Greek idiom, ophthalmos poneros. It literally means evil eye. So this farmer's like, why are you giving me the evil eye? I paid you plenty for the work that you did. I just, I wanted to be generous to these other people. Why, why are you doing this? But I think we do the same thing. When we decide that we're entitled to grace plus everything else we want, grace plus everything everyone else has, we give God the stink eye. Like, honestly, we just, we walk along and we're like, how dare you? How dare you? And you know the worst part about doing that? Is that we're not giving God the evil eye because of, his greed. It's not because God is, is hoarding resources for himself and just keeping them. We're mad at God because he's generous. Because he gave something to somebody else. And deep down, we have a conviction that anything anybody else gets is something God must have robbed from us. And that feels kind of gross. It is. It is. It's human, but it's messed up. It's turning a blind eye to the generous grace we received and to the gift of life we've received. Like from God's perspective, we're so far in debt, we don't deserve any of it. But when we forget that we're broken and helpless and hopeless, when we forget we're people plucked straight off the highway to hell by a God who said, I love them, take me instead. When we forget that, we give him the evil eye. As though he hasn't done enough for us, as though the things that he's given us aren't quite what we deserve, and we need more. I think the deep, deep tragedy of that is coming to any space where we think that anything God has given us is because we earned it. Like we chased him down and checked that box so he has to give us the blessing, because we didn't. None of us chased God down. Notice in the story, it was the farmer who came after the workers every single time. It was the farmer who showed up where they were rather than expecting them to come to him. It was the farmer who sacrificed to find them and invite them in and invite them to have purpose and invite them to receive the blessings he had for them. And you guys, this is God and us. Like we didn't work our way to the cross. Jesus stepped out of eternity into the fabric of the human story to be with us. And though none of us had done anything to deserve it, he gave everything so we could be forgiven and set free. And when we realize that, it changes absolutely everything about our lives, everything about the way we look out and see our world and see everyone around us. If we are gonna build lives, we don't need to escape from, we gotta kill comparison. And the crazy thing is, as much as comparison kills contentment, grace kills comparison. Comparison kills contentment, but grace kills comparison. So I got a simple invitation for all of us this morning. When I say simple, I don't mean easy. It's not always the easiest thing to do. Simple in that it's not very complicated. I just wanna invite all of us to let God's grace wash over us today, afresh and anew. 
I want to allow us, or I want to invite us to just be wowed, to be blown away by the fact that the creator of the universe who owed us nothing after we rejected him and ran away said, I love you so much. I would give anything to have her, to have him, to have you in my family. And he came for us and we're here. We're here and we're alive and we're breathing and it's a gift and it's beautiful. And we have the opportunity because of what Jesus did for us to be reconciled forever to God and to the people around us. And it's incredible. And if you haven't accepted that invitation yet, you can today. It's free. All you got to do is put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and decide to follow him as Lord. It's that simple. But when we do that, it changes everything. And when we don't, I just think if we don't make time every once in a while to be amazed by God's amazing grace, to just let it wash over us and completely blow our minds. If we don't, then it's really easy to end up in that spot that Peter ended up in, wondering, what about me? What do I get? What do I get? What am I earning? And as we do that, it just sucks the life and the joy straight out of our souls. But when we remember that absolutely everything in front of our faces is an incredible gift from God, then we can live with joy and step into purpose. We don't got to keep up with the Joneses anymore. We can just be who God made us to be. And we can do community in a way that allows us to celebrate other people's gifts and rejoice over their blessings because we're genuinely excited for them rather than jealous of them. It's such a better way of existing. I love the way Jesus closes this parable. When he says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Because Peter's asking, he's like, what do I get? What do I get from you? I'm better than that guy who walked away. I'm better than that guy who wouldn't sacrifice. So, So what do I get? And Jesus says, you get the same thing as the last people get, and they get the same thing as you get. Everybody gets one denarius. Everybody gets grace. Everybody gets the same because everybody needs the same. But this grace that I'm talking about is an unbelievable, undeserved gift. It's more than you could have ever asked or imagined. And it's everything you need to completely reroute your present and your future. That's God's grace, and it's amazing. You guys pray with me? God, thank you for grace. Lord, all of us, every last one of us, struggle from time to time, not to compare ourselves to the people around us, not to look out and wonder why someone else has what we don't, not to get bitter about that. Every one of us, even in our faith, even in trying to follow you, even in desperately loving you and appreciating what you've done for us, every one of us struggles sometimes not to ask for grace plus, not to feel like, hey, grace is great, but can I also have everything else I want, everything else everyone else has, Lord, and it's sucking the life out of us. It's killing us, it's killing our culture. Or could we be a people who are so awed, so overwhelmed by the grace of just being alive and by the beauty of your love that allowed you to step into our story and save us? Will we be a people so wowed by that that we walk out into the world with peace and love and joy and purpose and gratitude? in a way that allows us to just live your grace and shine a light in the darkness around us. God, would you help us kill comparison and live in grace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.